Good morning. So I did something that I regret a few days ago. I found an app that will tell me exactly how long I've been on my cell phone during a given day. <laughs> Terrible mistake. Before the first service this morning, I checked at 8.55 in the morning, I had been on my phone for 27 minutes this morning. And I'm not not super excited about what I'm going to find out this week, just how much time gets absorbed by that little device. We've got this amazing technology, more technology in our pocket than the astronauts carried to the moon, and the most extraordinary means of communication maybe ever, but I don't know if you've noticed, we've got better means of communication and less understanding. Have you noticed? I counted this week, counting the old-fashioned way where I talk to somebody face-to-face, -face. there's 11 channels that anybody can use to get a hold of me. 11. That's a lot to watch. If you're trying to reach me and I seem inattentive, try again, okay? There's just a really good chance I missed it across 11 different channels. Now, maybe you don't have quite that many open, but some of you are going to use them this morning, even while I'm preaching. I can, I, I can see sometimes, okay? If I'm making a serious point and you're laughing looking into your phone, you're probably on a different channel than I am at that particular moment. You can see more than you can imagine from up here. I don't know if, I'm, if I should take this personally or not. With all these means of communication, it's not having a great effect. Sometimes I answer text messages with my mind instead of my phone. Is anybody else doing this? Like you get a text message, you think of the response, you think you've made the response, and five days later you find out, I didn't actually send that, I just, I just thought it. And what's worse, sometimes people ask me to get in touch, I'll write them back, and two weeks later we finally connect. Is this happening to anybody else? Like, I really need to talk to you, please get in touch, okay, here I am. Two weeks later, now, finally, we're talking. We are awash in communication and starved for understanding. We have more knowledge than ever and apparently less and less wisdom. The passage I'm preaching to you today, really I'm preaching somebody else's sermon. And pastors can get fired for that sort of thing. But what I mean by this is the book of Hebrews in your New Testament, if you'll take the time to find it, the book of Hebrews has the literary structure of a sermon. It's not written like all of the other epistles. Paul, for instance, and we'll go there today as we celebrate communion at the end of this service. Paul writes epistles. He writes personal letters to individuals and churches, and they have a certain kind of structure. Hebrews is just different in many respects. It's one of the richest books in the New Testament, but because it was, wasn't written originally to us, it challenges even people who have been walking with Jesus for a long time. It's written as a sermon. See, if you're holding a Bible in your hands or you're looking at it on an electronic device, it is a single consistent message from God that comes together, but understand this, it comes together across some 1,400 years. From the first pages written by Moses to the last book written by the Apostle John, some 1,400 years pass. Most of the authors obviously never met. They could not possibly collaborate. They wrote in three different languages, Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic. And God is 
a God who communicates. Today, we're looking at a Christmas message in an unusual place in this book called Hebrews. It's not, the title is not found anywhere in Scripture, but it was given that name a very, very long time ago because it was obvious to its first readers and the second generation of readers that it was written to people who were coming from a Jewish background. In the first century, particularly for Jews, it is starting to get painful to follow Jesus. You're reading a sermon written to people with, who lived within the lifetime of Jesus. They're not like us, examining the historical documents of the New Testament some 2,000 years later. They actually lived within the lifetime of Jesus. They could have talked to people who actually met Him in person. And the message and the fulfilled prophecies have been so overwhelming and so convincing that people who were once skeptical are now committed. They're on fire. They, as their opponents will say elsewhere in the Bible, are turning the world upside down. They refuse to shut up. They will not be silenced, saying about Jesus, this man that they've met, what they saw and heard from him as they observed his life. But now it's getting painful. Our culture is so easily disjointed. We're so easily mobile. I mean, you could be on the other side of the country in six or seven hours later this afternoon if you so choose. In the ancient world, people generally died in the same place they were born. Their families were so tightly knit together. When you got married, the custom was generally to build another section onto the house. So for someone in a family to say, I believe that Jesus actually is the Messiah, I believe the Scriptures we've heard in synagogue all our lives point to Him and only to Him, and I am following Him, and I am now gathering with other believers on a Sunday morning, and if I go into the synagogue, I understand those prophecies to speak of Jesus, that would have put a lot of families and a lot of individuals at a crossroads. And families and friendships and employment and long loyalties are now being tested. So a lot of people who have made an initial profession of faith in Jesus are starting to follow Him, and many who are skeptical but starting to be convinced find themselves, as some people do today, under pressure what to decide about Jesus. That's why Hebrews 1 starts with this single important idea that God is a great communicator, and he has been talking to Israel for a very long time. Hebrews chapter 1, everybody find it? I didn't know what to make of that, uh, of that response. I'm sorry, I was looking down at my Bible. Everybody have it? There we are, good. Hebrews chapter 1, what I'm going to read to you is a single long sentence in Greek, and it begins like this. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Study the Bible together. This anonymous author himself, obviously, he must have been a Jewish believer himself because, and that's part of what makes it difficult reading sometimes, he's soaked in the Scriptures. He speaks of the priesthood, and he speaks of the sacrifices, and he speaks of the law, and he speaks of Moses with the ease of familiarity of someone who is speaking of the faith of his childhood and his entire life until he met Jesus. And he looks back across their history and says this regarding God as a communicator, long ago at many times and in many ways, 
God spoke to our fathers, our ancestors, by the prophets. So, God has been, Hebrews says, in the custom. He's had the habit of speaking in a lot of different ways for a very long time. And how is it that He spoke to Israel according to verse 1? By the prophets. A prophet is someone who stands between people and God and tells them what God has said. That's all a prophet is. He doesn't claim to be the message, but he claims to have a message that God has spoken to him, and he will authenticate, generally, he will authenticate the truth of the prophet by making those things come true. If you read your Old Testament, prophets were hardly ever well-received. Most of the prophecies that they brought to people were to bring them back, to make them leave their idolatry, to make them, shake them out of their half-heartedness, to shake them back to wakefulness in a culture that they had been absorbed by and they had grown spiritually insensitive in. He says, God has been speaking to us long ago at many times in many ways. God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But here's one of the greatest turns in history. But in these last days, in our days, he means, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Wow. When they read this for the first time, he would have, they would have been looking back across a thousand years of history. Between the first words of Genesis written by Moses and the last words of the book of Malachi, a thousand years would have rolled by. And they would have been continually hearing from God across the generations. And he says that's what God was doing. He was speaking to our ancestors by the prophets. He sent man after man after man to speak for him and to tell us who he was, what he wanted, what his plans were, what his character was like, what he was up to. But in these last days, in our days, what a time to be alive. In our days, in our lifetime, he has spoken to us by his son. Well, that's just very, very different, isn't it? This is not a message arriving. God, the great communicator, is now doing something different. He is speaking to us, Hebrews says, by His Son. God, the great communicator, has spoken to us by His Son. Across that thousands of years, I'm not sure it would be possible even for a scholar with a computer to count how many different messages were delivered to Israel from God. One careful scholar has recorded 25 prophecies in the Old Testament that were fulfilled in the last 24 hours of Jesus' life on earth. 25 prophecies fulfilled in 24 hours. Astonishing. And Hebrews chapter 1, in the, in, rather verse 2, is saying what is happening now in these last days, in our days, God has spoken to us by His Son. And then He goes on to describe in seven amazing ways exactly why Jesus matters so much, what makes Him so different. We're going to pull them out of the Scripture together. I'm going to ask you some questions as we move along. There's seven clauses, seven phrases that appear here. In these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, here's the first, whom He appointed the heir of all things. Heir is not a word that we use very often, H-E-I-R. What's it mean? 
An heir is someone who what? Who has an inheritance. The author of Hebrews says, the first thing I need to tell you about Jesus is he is the heir of all things. In other words, Jesus of Nazareth, the one that you can check in your scriptures, was born in Bethlehem, the one who was raised in Nazareth, the one who everyone thought was a was being raised by his mother Mary and what turns out to be his stepfather Joseph who was a carpenter by trade and worked in a little town that was probably not much bigger than our campus. That simple carpenter is now actually the heir of all things. In other words, he's the the owner of the universe. Look in the next clause. It says, through whom also he created the world. God, the creator of all things, whose first mention in Genesis 1, verse 1, the first time God ever spoke to Israel, it was to say this, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the author of Hebrews is saying the agent, the originator of God's creation is Jesus. He's not only the heir then, what would you call this then? He's the, he's the creator. Verse 3 is massive, has so many Jewish connections. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. Now, there's a lot there. Look at it carefully. He is the radiance of the glory of God. What's that mean? Well, as they would have gone to synagogue and heard their Scriptures read aloud, and many of these families would have committed Scripture to memory, they would remember that at many times and in many ways when God spoke to people, Not always, but often he would give a visible representation of something unnatural that could not be explained by natural phenomenon so that they would know that it was God speaking. And very often, not always, but very often what God showed to represent himself was light. Remember Moses' experience? Moses has run for his life from Egypt. He's on the backside of the desert, moving on with his life. The prince of Egypt is now a simple shepherd, a herder. And he has an unexpected encounter with God. How did God manifest his presence first? What did God do to draw Moses' attention? Burning bush. And he was drawn to light. He was drawn to fire. Later, during the Exodus, Moses is going to go up on the mountain to receive the law from God, and one of the witnesses that God gave to Moses and to the people that it was actually God at work is that Moses came down with the mountain with his face shining so brightly that it frightened people. This is what it means. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God. This is important. What he means is not that Jesus reflects the glory of God. Because in our solar system, we have a source of light called the sun. And some days it appears that the moon is much brighter than others, and we think of the moon shining, but it doesn't. The moon only reflects the light of the sun. That is the sort of thing that he's driving at here. Jesus doesn't reflect the glory of God. It's not that he shows it. He actually radiates it. He has light of his own, which is the radiance of the glory of God, and he goes on to say the exact imprint of his nature. 
And in what I just read to you, there's a word in Greek that appears only here in the, exa- in the New Testament, and what he's trying to tell you is that Jesus is the owner of the universe, he's the creator of the universe, and most astonishingly of all, Jesus Christ is God made visible. So for a thousand years, the people who were reading this letter had only heard about God and heard from God, but in their lifetime, God became visible. The exact imprint of his nature means that the very substance and nature of God is Jesus Christ. And what has changed is that the eternal God has now, as John said, become flesh and dwelt among us. And John said, we beheld his glory. We saw things that could not be be merely explained by another human being. This is incredible. This next phrase says, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Wow. And that took me back to my high school days when they made me study mythology. And I met Atlas. Remember Atlas? Atlas is pictured as a gigantic muscular man who's got a heavy weight on his shoulders. What's he bearing? Us, the globe. That's what comes to mind here, but this Greek word, sustains, has much more than that. Yes, part of it is that Jesus, by the power of His Word, actually keeps the world together. One of the abiding fascinations of science is when they penetrate beyond the molecular level is this amazing question that somehow everything holds together. Here's the theological reason. God who made it sustains it. It is His creation. He doesn't live within it. He is not part of it. It is something He made independent to Himself, and He keeps it together. He sustains it, but the other meaning of the word is more comforting. It means that God not only keeps the universe together, it also has this idea in Greek, that the world is making progress. In other words, God is guiding it toward its intended purpose. And I like that second meaning because in 2017, I'm just about done reading with the news because the world is so chaotic. So many things are senseless. So many things seem to be moving us backward. We are so divided. The world is so frightening and violent and nonsensical. Hebrews says that Jesus himself is keeping the world together. He upholds the universe by the word of his power, and his, in his own time, he is presently and he will someday complete the work of guiding all of creation toward his intended purpose. And then comes the most Jewish part of all and the most meaningful to us, if you understand his word picture. It says, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Let's start at the end. In first century Judaism, as today, there was a fascination with angels. If you go to Barnes & Noble, you'll be surprised how many different titles and theories and books are being written about angels. I can't tell you how many times being a pastor people have given me or asked me to read a book about angels and tell them what I think about it from a biblical point of view. This fascination that God has messengers and servants among us that are spiritual beings 
fascinates people. And in the first century, one of the temptations that people were being offered to walk away from Jesus is this idea that perhaps He was just another one of the angels. And the rest of Hebrews 1, which I won't take time to show you, actually obliterates that idea by saying that He is simply superior to them, that He is better in nature, in purpose, His very being and character is far greater and just a different sort of thing than any angel. But the first part is the best part of this whole passage. It says that Jesus made purification for sins, and then He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And this would have drawn them right back in to Judaism. Because the heart, of the, Judaism, the heart of Judaism was the office of the priest. There were many priests in Israel. And one, the great high priest, once a year, went into a special place called the Holy of Holies and offered a single sacrifice for the sins of the people that would have to be repeated the following year. And if the prophet stood in front of people and spoke for God, the priest stood in front of people to join them to God. He presented God to people and people to God, and he offered a sacrifice, not himself. He offered a sacrifice to make peace, to establish reconciliation between God and the people he stood in front of. But what it says about Jesus, once you understand that background, is just entirely different. It says, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. What's that about? Well, if you remember, perhaps you've seen in a movie any representation of the tabernacle. You'll remember that place, that holy of holies that they would have read about their entire lives as they worked through the writings of Moses. And it had many beautiful pieces of furniture, all designed to show the holiness of God and the neediness of the people that stood outside that place. And the one piece of furniture that was not created and designed to be placed in that tabernacle by God was a chair, because the priest was always standing. He always stood as a reminder to himself and to the people that his work would never be done. And if he, lived long, if he lived long enough, he would have to go back into the same place with the same sacrifice to offer the sacrifice year after year. And when he grew old and sick and died, another man would rise and this would go on forever and ever until Jesus came. Now we're told after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Why? Because he's the mediator between God and, and us. He is the sacrifice himself, and having done all that, he sits down because the work is done, and now he reigns. Look with me in Hebrews 9:26 for further explanation. Hebrews 9, verse 26 now. And I'll actually read from verse 24. And he's starting with their tabernacle to say that Jesus has done something different and better. Hebrews 9, verse 24. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands. In other words, when Christ appeared before God, he did not go into any earthly structure that human hands could have fabricated. Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but unto heaven itself, 
Now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. There's love for you. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he, Jesus, would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of who? Of himself. That's your security. You don't have to offer sacrifices. And this is where the good news of the gospel of Jesus and the name of Jesus parts way with religion. There are all kinds of religions. Some of them call themselves Christian, but here's the distinguishing characteristic. Religion invites you to do many things and to make many sacrifices, whatever traditions that religion has established, and perhaps someday you will do enough so that God will accept you. Let me speak of the Catholicism I grew up with and grew up around. I knew many, many sincere Catholics growing up. Some of them were dear friends, I count it. Some of them is nearly family to this day. But those who were sincere, who were committed, always had this burden. I'm not talking about the twice a year Catholic. I'm talking about the one who is walking the path, who's been told that he's committing sins. Some in the language of the church are venial and some are mortal. But that God has offered sacraments in their place, different things, acts of faith that he can undertake And God, by those sacraments, will give him grace. And here's the effect, and that was the burden and the troubled conscience. And for those who were truly sincere and self-aware, there was always this burden of fear or nervousness or wondering because they knew they were running up a debt with God. Their conscience told them that much. They also knew that as as many sacraments as they practiced and as many of the traditions as they walked in, God was supposed to be giving them grace in those actions, but nobody would show them the scoreboard. They were never sure how they were doing. They were never sure of the balance or the debt that they had with God. It would be very much like having a job and getting automatic deposit, but they refused to tell you how much you're being paid. And having to go out into the world and pay for your bills and your groceries and swiping that debit card everywhere you went into stores with no prices so that nobody can tell you how much you're paying. You would be be continually worried, how am I doing? Am I going deep in the hole? Are they going to come back to take everything I think I own? Or am I doing okay? Hebrews does away with all that by saying at one specific time, At the end of the ages, once for all, Jesus has come into the very presence of God, no earthly temple, no earthly tabernacle, to offer the sacrifice of himself. Look now in the very next chapter in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11. Again, he's speaking to them of their lifetime Judaism. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies shall be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That's peace, that's security, that's love. Because religion invites you to come up and to try harder. 
The grace of Jesus announces that whatever you do, nothing will ever be enough. That's why God Himself, the owner of the universe, the creator of all that is, made Himself visible among His creation. The world that He was sustaining, and He became in His incarnation at Christmas our mediator on the cross. He became our sacrifice, and because His work has been completed, He is now returned to the heaven which He Himself made, and He sits enthroned as King to rule. One day to return, to redeem, and take everyone He saved to the place that Jesus Himself said in John 14, to the place that He has prepared for us. That's Jesus. What is the message of this passage? What is the message of the entire book of Hebrews? Simply this, Jesus is just better. He's better. Better than who? Everyone. Better than what? Everything. In every respect, He is simply better. He's better in these three ways, at least. He's better because He is final. No one else is coming. In, at long ago, in many times and in many ways, God spoke to Israel. God spoke to His people through prophets. But in these last days, He spoke to us by His Son. There is no greater message and no more will be said apart from Christ. No one else is coming. He's it. He's the final one. He's the final prophet. He's the final messenger. He is the one unique offer of salvation. If you put it in earthly terms, this is the firefighter fighting his way through the flames, telling the victim who is about to die to come with him and live. There is no other way out, but this man knows the way. If you only trust Him and follow Him, you'll be saved. He's also better not only because He's final, but also because He's personal. A prophecy is something that can be spoken to people once or read in pages for centuries. But when God spoke to us through His Son, He came Himself. That makes all the difference, and we deal with that socially every day of our lives. If you've ever needed a meeting with someone important or someone who can do something for you, you know immediately where you stand on whether they want to meet with you or not. A lot of times we get pushed over to assistance. God Himself has come. Once you get the meeting, there's another little power game that is played, and you can always tell who matters more depending on who's doing the driving, right? If you drive and you go to their place, that means they've got the power. Once you arrive, some people like to stay behind their desk in a big comfy chair, and you sit in a lousy little chair in front of them to not get too comfortable because really it's just a great honor for you to be with them, and they don't really need you to stay there for very long. The Christmas story is very different. God didn't speak from a distance for years For a thousand years, he laid out in detail through the preaching of the prophets, which were recorded in his scripture, exactly who his son was. And then at the time of God's own choosing, at the appointed perfect time in history, God himself came for you, for your sake, to save you, to welcome you into God's family. And that's the best part. It's not only final and personal The arrival of Jesus, this Christmas message, this final message from God is superior because it does what we need most. It cleanses us from sin. It takes care of the biggest problem. See, the value, the worth of a person sometimes to us is what they can do. I occasionally have a left knee that bothers me, and if I could ever meet somebody who could say, give me 20 minutes and your knee will never hurt again, I'm interested. 
But I, if I had a ravaging infection that I knew was slowly killing me and invading all of my organs and taking first my senses and eventually my life, the person who can say, I've given my life to provide an antidote, give me one minute of your time and you'll be completely healed, that's so much better than taking care of the knee. Jesus comes to take care of the ultimate problem, the infection that is corroded, that is entered and corroded every human soul. That's why the end of the message says, after He made purification for sins, He sat down. He was enthroned at the right hand of the majesty on high. What that means is that we can be forgiven and free. And maybe you find yourself, as so many people do, in a pressure-packed situation where your love for Jesus, frankly, is starting to get a little cold. And you live in a world where you're being told repeatedly that Jesus might be a good idea for you, but candidly, He's just one of many options. It's more a matter of a personal value or the way you were brought up or whatever works for you, wherever you can find comfort. Scripture tells you over and over again from the perspective of first-hand witnesses who went on to give their lives rather than to take their testimony back that Jesus is the only one who could cleanse us from sin. That means that you can be forgiven and free. You don't have to walk the path of religion anymore. Don't get confused, just because Crosspoint is a church, that does not mean that we deal with and broker in religion. In other words, man-made traditions that if carefully followed and patiently obeyed can someday make you right with God. No, we're a church. We are a family of faith that announces the good news of the gospel, that Jesus died to forgive us from sin, that by the sacrifice of Himself, He welcomes sons and daughters into the family of God, there to be loved and there to be forgiven and safe and free. And you can know Him this morning for one single, solitary, important historical fact. Jesus is just better. Let's pray together. Let me speak first to the Christian, to the disciple of Jesus. Maybe you're one of those who's, you've just gotten a little discouraged. Maybe you're the only Christian in your family or the only committed Christian in your family and you just fight the headwinds of being a believer every day and you have so many people around you and your life doesn't make sense to them, they find you a little ridiculous. And you get this quiet little ostracism going on and you're just wondering whether he's worth it. He is. He's better. The owner, the creator, the king of the universe also became your priest, your sacrifice, your mediator to bring you to God. He presented himself your sacrifice so that you could be saved. Discouraged Christian, hang on to him. If you've started to wonder, come back and say, Jesus, I understand you're better. My life is hard, but you're better. Your life rules over my life. Give me love. Help me follow you. And if you're one of those who's been wondering, and you just haven't crossed what a friend of mine calls the line of faith, you're standing just on the other side of trusting Jesus. Can I invite you as His follower, as one more reporter, one more messenger, to put your trust in Jesus today? To tell Him that you're sorry for your sin and you're going to trust Him to deal with it and you want Him to save you, forgive you, be your mediator, give you peace with God. He can do all of that and more. 
Think about it. I've given you a single sentence in the Greek New Testament, four verses that are our English Bible. It's just the beginning of who Jesus is and what he does if only people will trust him. So if you're not certain of your relationship with him, my personal specific invitation to you is to call out to him in prayer right now and say, Jesus, I am sorry for my sin. I'll take you as my sacrifice. Come into my life. Cleanse me. Give me freedom. Give me your forgiveness and teach me to follow you. And he will. He'll do it probably for thousands of people today across the world. People will look at religion. They'll look at themselves. They'll look at their best efforts. They'll look at their personal resolve to do better. They'll give up on all that and they'll start trusting Jesus. And so can you. My invitation is for you to do it right now. Father, encourage the discouraged, brokenhearted Christian. For some, this Christmas is harder than others because of loss, because of an empty chair, because of disappointment that this year has brought. Comfort them. Come to them, Lord, as the peace of God that you are, and show them your love and give them your comfort and your mercy. For those who have been quietly wandering away from you, bring them back, Lord, with a wholehearted devotion. Help them take a step closer to you. And Lord, for those who are here, who are right on that edge of faith, I pray that right now, at this moment, you would give them the gift of trusting you. And today, they would take you. Not this message, not this church, not any human effort. They would take you, Jesus, as their Savior and their salvation. We ask you this in Jesus' name.